Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar Johnson. Today we're going to be doing a deep dive on one of the teams that I write about for the hashtag basketball website, the Brooklyn Nets. So I'm here with my colleague, Charles Maniego. Charles, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well, Nick. How are you? I'm doing well as well. Let's get started by talking about the Nets offseason. And the biggest move that the Nets made in the offseason was signing Jeremy Lin to a three-year, $36 million contract. And the Nets have been sort of a run-of-the-mill bad team with Lin on the floor. I'd say they'd probably be around a 25-30 win team if he played the whole season. But unfortunately, he has been struggling with hamstring issues throughout the season. So what are your thoughts on Jeremy Lin's play so far in Brooklyn? I think Lin's been solid so far. He's tried to fit into his role as a starter, uh, which is probably the first time he's started consistently since Houston or LA. But Obviously, the hamstring issues have been a really big blow to both the Nets and him. And when you look at the Nets, they also lost Brewers Vasquez within the first five games of the season. And that was another big blow to their overall standings. So they had to fill in with Isaiah Whitehead, Yogi Ferrell, and Sean Kilpatrick, and they even started Randy Foy at point guard. So Lynn might not be like super impressive as a point guard, but he's definitely a step up over the guys I just mentioned. Yeah, I think that really does sort of encapsulate the Nets' struggles this season. Jeremy Lynn it would probably be in the bottom half of starting point guards in the league, but I think he is a starting caliber point guard, and without him, they played Isaiah Whitehead, who's looked good for a rookie, but is still a rookie that was taken in the second round. They've basically started Spencer Dinwiddie for a significant number of games, and Spencer Dinwiddie basically came out of the D-League. He hadn't really played at all in the past couple of years. And when you are a team like the Nets that is not probably a playoff caliber team, when you lose your backup point guard before the season even starts and your starting point guard five games into the season, it's just a struggle for them to create offense. And especially given the kind of offense that Kenny Atkinson has tried to run this year, it's just a tough haul if you don't have a primary ball handler. Yeah, that's really evident in the amount of turnovers they commit per game. They lead the league in turnovers per game. That's really telling that they don't really have a primary playmaker. And with Isaiah Whitehead, he's never been a primary point guard except now. And playing in the NBA, being a rookie is hard, but playing as a rookie as a point guard and starting is even more difficult. So let's move on to the other major free agent acquisition that the Nets made, which was Trevor Booker. And Trevor Booker had actually never been a starter before this year, and he's more recently started coming off the bench, but he started almost every game for Brooklyn up until this recent stretch where he's been coming off the bench. And I've been incredibly impressed by Trevor Booker. He gives 100% effort at all times. He's a lot more athletic than people think he is. He's surprisingly good at covering both sides of the pick and roll, both as the big man dropping back and even fighting over screens to get at point guards. And he's run a surprising number of plays in transition for Brooklyn when they haven't had a lead guard. And For me personally, I think Trevor Booker has been the most fun to watch of any net this season outside of Karis LeVert. 
Yeah, I kind of agree with you there, too. I kind of think he's the heart of the Nets with the way he plays, and he really sets the tone for the team. Because they're not as talented as other teams, they're all effort, and that can really be exemplary with Trevor Booker. I agree with you with his defensive play so far. He's really good at switching on the pick and roll, which he kind of does too much on the 1-4 pick and roll, but that's just a nitpick by me. But offensively, he's kind of been a little bit of a black hole. I kind of think he'd be much better suited as a pick and roll guy instead of posting up, which he often does whenever he sees a mismatch. And I feel like that's been happening more as he's been coming off the bench, as he isn't playing alongside Brooke Lopez and Jeremy Lin. He's sort of taken that as free pass to just occasionally take over the offense and Granted, it's better for the Nets if he's posting up opposing bench big men than if he's trying to post up starters, but I feel like that's been happening more lately than it did towards the beginning of the season. Yeah, he's even started taking some face-up jumpers, which I've never seen him do before. Like He only started doing that in like late February, and up until now, it's something completely new. So it's something to monitor to see if he becomes efficient at shooting that shot. The other thing with Booker that I think made him a great fit in the starting lineup is he is surprisingly good at rebounding for someone who's an undersized power forward. And especially when you're playing alongside Brooke Lopez, who is a lot better at boxing out than he is at actually getting the rebounds himself. I think Booker is a really good frontcourt mate for him, especially since Brooke has started taking more three-pointers this year. It sort of makes it easier for Brooklyn to play an undersized four who isn't really a stretch four, but fills in those defensive niches and rebounding that Booker can and has done this season. Right. I also feel that watching Trevor Booker on the offensive end, he's the only one that really hustles for offensive rebounds. You can see him diving on the floor. He's surrounded by four opposing team jerseys and he somehow gets the rebound. It's been super impressive, especially with Lopez not really playing on the interior anymore. There's no one really on the Nets that can grab offensive rebounds, and Trevor Booker does that job. So before we get into the rookies, let's just look at the other free agent acquisitions this offseason, Joe Harris and Randy Foy. You talked a bit earlier about how Randy Foy has made some spot starts at point guard. Joe Harris has also started a lot on the wing this season, and I think Joe Harris's season has honestly been remarkable. After he played 15 minutes for the Cavs last year. He's now played in 52 games for Brooklyn. He surpassed his career minutes total pretty early in the season and has just been building on it since then. He's a solid three-point shooter, a competent defender, but do you think Harris might continue to get major minutes going into next season, or do you think this was more of a function of him just getting major minutes with other guys out? I think Harris will be a really decent off-the-bench player for the Nets going forward or any team going forward, especially with his shooting. You read the Zach Lowe piece on the, the role start players. Joe Harris made that list, and I think he included a quote in there that mentioned how Kenny Atkinson signed Joe Harris and scouted Joe Harris to be the Nets' Kyle Korver. That might be like a really weird comparison because Korver's like the star, and Harris has only played 56 games before this season. But I can really see the similarities, especially with the way they move off the ball and how Harris has really started putting the ball on the floor and taking it to the rim lately and more efficiently. The other thing about Harris is that his shooting from outside has improved massively over the course of the season. He really struggled in the first couple of months of the season, but in December he shot almost 43% from deep, then fell off again in January. But 
in February, he made more than 50% of his threes, which is absurd. He's currently out with a concussion, which is troubling for the Nets in the short term, just because he's been a guy who's played major minutes from them. And I think it's even more important to have Harris in the lineup, given how much the Kenny Atkinson offense sort of centers around the three-pointer. But speaking of centered around the three-pointer, let's move on to the other veteran guy that we wanted to discuss in Randy Foy, who he has taken most of his shots from deep. But unlike Harris, who's at 38.5%, Foy's at only 35% from deep, and he's at a little under 38% from the floor overall. And maybe this is just me, but if you're coaching the Nets and Randy Foy is shooting that poorly from the floor, he doesn't really contribute much else. I don't know why he would continue to get major minutes going forward as a 33-year-old on this team that hasn't really shown that he can score the ball efficiently. Yeah, I agree. Foy's been really up and down. Like his highest point totals have been like 15 and 16 and that have occurred like months in between each other. And I think Atkinson's starting Foy because he's probably one of the Nets' best perimeter defenders. Sean Kilpatrick isn't great on the wing. Joe Harris is okay. Akaris Levert is still improving. And Foy has that veteran know-how to really read screens. But his offensive production really outweighs how decent he is on defense. All right, very quickly before we move on to the rookies, Justin Hamilton had a really hot start to the season, and he has really, really struggled since then. He hit 44% of his three-pointers in November and looked like an incredible steal of a stretch five, and he's now down to under 30% from deep on the season. And he's decent defensively, but I would assume that if he can't continue to hit those three-pointers, he's just going to play his way out of the rotation. Yeah. If you look at his numbers month by month, he shot 43% from three in November, then it dipped to 10% in December. And from January and beyond, he shot below 30% from three. And he's kind of lost his spot in the rotation as of late. But I think he's still an intriguing piece going forward because it's obvious Sean Marks and the Nets wanted him because he was their second huge free agent signing this summer. So it'll be interesting to see how he plays going forward or if his shot can fall going forward as well. All right, let's move on to the rookies and the guy that I dubbed my most exciting Nets player so far this year, Karis LeVert. Now, Karis LeVert was considered to be a lottery pick after his sophomore season at Michigan, but since then, he struggled with repeated foot injuries. He broke his foot, I believe it was three times before the Nets drafted him, and his stock fell considerably after that. But the Nets foot doctor also happened to be the person who performed Karis LeVert's most recent surgery, and that doctor, Dr. Martin O'Malley, said that LeVert was basically clear going forward. And since LeVert has come back for the Nets, he's been a real revelation. He can play one through three. He's a little bit skinny to guard threes at this point, but you can see the potential for him to guard one through three pretty effectively. He's good with the ball in his hands. He's a great shooter off ball. And I've just loved everything I've seen out of Karis LeVert this season. But what are your thoughts on him? Yeah, definitely. I think the day of the draft, a lot of people were kind of negative on the Karis LeVert trade because they traded their second best player, Thaddeus Young, for LeVert, who was slated as a mid-second round pick. But I've been really impressed with LeVert so far. He hasn't really shot it too efficiently from three at 29%, but every time he has the ball, it's really exciting. He has a really good 
IQ. He can see down the floor and he uses his height to find players that are cutting or if he's on a drive, he's really good at throwing that underhand shovel pass to a big men that are in the paint as well. Yeah, and the thing with his three-point shooting, he's struggled recently to make those three-pointers, but he shot 40% from deep during his college career, and his shot looks good. It's not like you see him shoot and it's like Rondé Hollis Jefferson. You look at it and you're like, oh, there's a hitch there. There's something that we need to try and fix as a coaching staff. He's got a good shot, and he's just missed a few recently that sort of brought down that percentage. Yeah, I feel like he's just kind of rushing into shots. He's had a lot of open looks, but he kind of rushes into shots a little too much. But I guess that'll improve once he gets adjusted to the flow of the game as his career goes on. The other rookie that I think is worth discussing for Brooklyn, Isaiah Whitehead. They got him with the 42nd pick. Basically, they traded their 55 pick and cash to Utah for Whitehead. And... I don't think Whitehead came into the season expecting to start very early on, but that's sort of what happened after the Jeremy Lin injury. And the thing for Whitehead that I think has been the most positive sign is that he's actually shooting slightly better in the NBA than he did his last season in college at Seton Hall. And he was given a role that he hadn't played in college, as you discussed earlier. He hadn't ever been a point guard before, much less a starting NBA point guard. And... For a second-round pick who just turned 22 and really wasn't seen as a primary ball handler coming into the NBA, I've been really impressed at how Whitehead has handled his role for Brooklyn so far this season. Yeah, definitely. I kind of see him more as a combo guard going forward. Him and Levert could rotate on bringing the ball up and setting up the offense. And I've been kind of impressed with Isaiah Whitehead, his drive and his toughness. Like whenever he goes to the rim, he is able to get a clean look, whether it's with a spin move or throwing it off the glass really craftily. And as of late, Whitehead has really picked it up. Against Dallas, he scored 24 points. Against Memphis, he scored 15 points. And against Sacramento, who scored 14 points, all with good efficiency. With the advanced metrics, uh, Whitehead is kind of looked at as one of the worst point guards in the NBA. But with the eye test, he, he really passes it for me, especially uh, with his poise and learning a new position as well. One lineup that we've seen a little bit of that I really want to see more of going forward are units with... Levert, Whitehead, Jeremy Lin, and then Rondé Hollis-Jefferson at power forward. And I think those units really have the potential to be what Kenny Atkinson wants from his offense, especially if you throw Brooke Lopez in at center, because you have basically a four-out scheme, except instead of your usual four-out scheme with the center in the middle, you have spacing from basically everybody except Hollis Jefferson as the power forward energy guy who can outrun everyone in his position. I think those kind of lineups would also be fun with Booker in Hollis Jefferson's place. I guess really what I want to see is Whitehead, Levert, and Lynn playing together as a backcourt, because I think that's going to be the kind of look that Atkinson is going to want to try out maybe down the stretch of this season, but particularly next season and going forward. Yeah, for sure. All of those guys can shoot it pretty decently. Uh, Lynn has shot it at 50% on the season, even though it's a small sample size for three. And all three of those guys can put it on the floor and set up the offense for their teammates as well. So that'd be pretty exciting. And even defensively, they can switch across positions, which is definitely needed in the way the Nets have played defense this season. All right, let's move from looking at the Nets offseason into 
an overview of their season as a whole. And let's start with the big man rotation. And the biggest question that I've had about the Nets big man rotation is the recent decision to move Trevor Booker to the bench. And this move kind of confused me because I thought Booker had been arguably the best player on the Nets this year, certainly among the two or three best. And I also just don't think he fits as well with the bench as he does alongside Brooke Lopez. But do you think there's anything I'm missing there? What are your thoughts on Booker being moved to the bench? I was a little puzzled by the decision as well. But looking at his numbers as a starter reserve, they've been eerily similar. He's averaged 9.8 points and 8.6 rebounds as a starter. And as a reserve, 11 points and 8.5 rebounds. It might just be Kenny Atkinson wanting to try a different look with Rondé Hollis Jefferson starting at the four rather than Booker just to have Hollis Jefferson get some experience at the four and to provide a lot more energy off the bench with Trevor Booker coming off the bench and backing up Ron Hallis Jefferson. I think there is a little element of something you pointed to earlier, which is that Booker has been shooting more coming off the bench, and you brought that up already. His scoring average has jumped a little bit coming off the bench while his rebounding numbers have gone slightly down. And maybe that is a part of it for Atkinson. If Jeremy Lin is going to be in the starting lineup, maybe he feels like he has enough scoring punch in the starting lineup to be able to afford to have Booker come off the bench and maybe choose the bench scoring a bit. But other than that, I guess having Hollis Jefferson in at the four is a benefit, but I think he works better as a wing defender anyway. So it has been a curious move for them. Anyway, moving on to Justin Hamilton, who we discussed a little bit earlier, he's sort of fallen out of the rotation after his really hot start. He's just been unable to hit from deep. Do you think there's a way that he sort of makes his way back into the rotation before the end of the season? Or do you think at this point he's just not providing enough if his shot's not going down? I think, especially with the way the net season has been going, they should at least give him a shot, whether it's 15 to 20 minutes per game or even less. If he can hit his shot, that's great. But if he can't, he's only making $3 million a year, I believe. But I'm more excited about Quincy Acey, who's really shot it well from three since he signed with the Nets in late January. So moving from the big man into the wing and guard rotation, and this sort of goes back to something that we just discussed, but do you think Rondé is a small four going forward, or do you think he is a wing? Because I think his defensive skill set more fits in with a perimeter defender, but maybe his offensive skill set makes it easier to slot him in at power forward since you're not going to get three-point shooting from him. Yeah, I agreed with what you said that he fits more as a wing defender, but because of his lack of shooting and the Nets' lack of a uh, stretch forward five outside of Brooke Lopez and Justin Hamilton, they have to start Rondé at the four. I'd like to see the Nets acquire a stretch four or even draft a stretch four in the future, but it's nice for Rodney to get experience with the four. Like they likened him to Draymond Green. I don't know how true that comparison will be, but it'll be interesting to see going forward, see if he's, he can stick in that position. Let's talk briefly about Sean Kilpatrick, who's been doing similar things to what he did last season, where he played 23 games for the Nets down the stretch and played his way into a longer-term contract. So this year, his minutes have gone up slightly, but he's taken exactly as many field goal attempts per game, 10.8 last year, 10.8 this year. His efficiency is down a little bit from last year. He's scoring 13.5 points a game after 13.8 last year, shooting 41.5% from the field this year after 46% last year, but also taking a greater percentage of his shots from deep than last year. 
And with Kilpatrick, he's very good at what he can do well, which is shoot, and he struggles with basically everything else. The one thing that I think has been a real positive for Kilpatrick, and a really surprising positive for Kilpatrick, is he's actually been a pretty decent rebounder this season. He's averaging four a game, which is not something you usually get from basically a pure shooting guard who's spent a little bit of time at the point. But what are your thoughts on how Kilpatrick has played this season? I think Kilpatrick's had an up and down season. At the beginning of the season, he played really well with Jeremy Lin alongside him. But when Lin got injured, he was forced into a primary ball handling role, which he definitely did not fit into. I think he's more suited as a catch and shoot player or a secondary option off the bench. One thing I've been really impressed with him so far is his ability to drive and get fouled uh, against, I believe it was the Hawks that Kilpatrick shot 16 of 17 free throws. And that was really impressive. So going forward, I think he should have a, a more limited role as a captain shoot player and as a driving option and not as a primary ball handler. So Kilpatrick has shot slightly better with Jeremy Lin in the lineup versus without. His true shooting percentage is 55.3% with Lin in versus 54.8% on the season. But I think what you said about his role is spot on. He's a shooting guard. He's one of the few, I think, pure shooting guards that are left in the NBA rather than combo guard type guys. And asking him to be the primary creator results in a lot of isolation ball with Kilpatrick just trying to score himself. And he can be a bit of a black hole on offense, which is fine as a complimentary player because he's a really efficient shooter from pretty much everywhere on the floor when he's open. But a lot of times he'll take it one on four into the lane or just take it one on four on the perimeter. And that results in unfortunate situations like the recent Dennis Schroeder strip. He's averaging more than two turnovers per game this season after last season being his career high at 1.2. So that's not really something he can do well. And I think you're right that for him to be more effective going forward, he needs to be more of an off-the-ball player. Right. Okay, let's move into looking at the two new leaders, basically, on this Nets team, the new coach in Kenny Atkinson and the new general manager in Sean Marks. And let's start with Kenny Atkinson. There have been a lot of really great pieces on the Nets situation recently, and the one that stood out to me most was Jackie McMullen's piece and talking about how basically Atkinson will wake up at 4.30 every morning and ride on a stationary bike while watching the Nets game and trying to write up notes and pushing himself harder every time the Nets sort of make a mistake. I think Atkinson has been really, really solid as a coach so far this season, and I think the record does not speak at all to how great he's been as a coach, because we've seen already the development from Isaiah Whitehead. We've seen already some development from Karis LeVert, and at the end of the day, his player development skills were what had the Nets interested in him in the first place, and if we're just looking at the player development of the younger players on the Nets roster, I think we've already seen some great signs this season. Yeah, definitely. We've seen even players like Joe Harris take it just being a catch-and-shoot player, now he's starting to drive, even Sean Kilpatrick as well. Even just looking at the offense, the offense is a lot improved from last year. And Atkinson, that one thing that people can't knock from him is that he's gotten his players to play hard. Like It seems like every game the Nets are within 10 in the fourth quarter, and that really doesn't match up considering their talent level. 
I think it was Randy Foy who, in that Jackie McMullen article, basically said something along the lines of, this is one of the best teen cultures I've ever been a part of. And Brooke Lopez has been saying all year that he's loved being a part of this team and how it's so different from that 12 and 70 season that they had earlier in his career. And I think a lot of that does fall on Kenny Atkinson, you know, keeping a positive attitude even as the team has struggled. The other thing about Atkinson, his out-of-timeout plays have been really solid for a rookie coach, and his offense, I think, has been brilliant in terms of using the Nets' talent as best as possible, playing at a really, really high pace and shooting as many three-pointers as possible. When you have this kind of team, sort of messing with the variance like that is, I think, a really good way to try and squeeze some wins out of this team, because if the Nets do get hot from deep, which they haven't much this season— those are the kind of games that they can win against superior talent. Yeah, I really believe in Atkinson going forward. He has the endorsement of, of Mike Budenholzer, who he basically took his whole offense. So I feel that if the Nets get the right players and get better overall, I think Atkinson can really show what, what kind of a coach he is. Let's move on to talking about Sean Marks. And Sean Marks has had a similar goal to Atkinson's, but on the executive side of trying to just build a good culture and trying to, I guess, get as many chances as possible, trying to play the odds of getting a star player or getting significant contributions from younger players. I think most of Marx's moves so far have really been on point. Trading Thaddeus Young for that number 20 overall pick was a bit of a risk, but given how Karis LeVert has played so far, I think that's a risk you take every time. Trading Boyan Bogdanovich for the first round pick from the Wizards, I think was a really solid move, even though Boyan has been on absolute fire since he put on a Wizards uniform. Just getting some kind of future piece for a guy who, although he was entering restricted free agency, was going to be 28 by the time the offseason rolled around and wasn't going to be as valuable to the Nets as he was to a team like Washington that basically all they needed was a guy who could shoot and score off the bench. The one move that Marx has made that I haven't really been a fan of so far is letting go of Yogi Ferrell, but... Again, Rick Carlisle is a wizard with the exact type of player that Yogi Ferrell is. And while I loved watching Yogi play for both the Nets and the Long Island Nets, I just don't think he would have been the kind of player he's been in Dallas had he continued to stay in a Brooklyn uniform. But other than letting go of Ferrell, I've been a big fan of pretty much everything Marks has done so far. What are your thoughts on him? I completely agree with you. Going into Brooklyn, Sean Marks said that the Brooklyn job was the worst job in the NBA, but he hasn't really made any panic decisions or anything out of desperation, which was something that Billy King was kind of known for. He's been a lot more patient, especially with trades. He waited until the deadline to trade Boyan Bogdanovich to see who the best suitor would be. And he's also not afraid to take risks. I think going forward, he has a vision for what this team should be. And we just have to wait a couple of years to fully realize that. This year might not be that great of a season, but we can see that things are slowly improving in Brooklyn after that first four years where it was all win now and all veteran players. I think the most positive message out of all the recent articles about the Nets rebuilding process have been Mikhail Prokhorov's repeated statements about how now he's willing to be patient and willing to take the long road with building this team, because that's what got them into this situation in the first place was not being patient. And his seeming willingness to wait it out, as shown both by his hires of Marks and Atkinson, as well as the fact that they haven't made any sort of win-now trades this season, I think has been really encouraging. 
Now, in terms of the season as a whole, the Nets have been playing better recently. Even in their losses, they've been playing close games that just got out of hand late. They've had some early leads that have been really encouraging. And I guess my thought on this is that without Jeremy Lin, this is like a 10 to 15 win team. But with Jeremy Lin, I think it's like a 25 to 30 win team. And I think we're going to see more of that down the stretch of the season than the really disturbing stretch that the Nets played to start 2017. Yeah, they were on like a 16 or 17 game losing streak, but their play has really improved as of late. It seems like the team is finally starting to gel, and Kenny Atkinson kind of has his lineup set now with Bondi Hallis Jefferson at the four. And with Lindback, he's just really a great leader for the team. And I'm really looking forward to see more of the Brooklyn combo going forward. All right. So since we both write about the Nets for Hashtag Basketball, I wanted to make sure we spent a lot of time on both of our most recent articles for the website. And let's start with your article on the trade deadline for Brooklyn. So you talked mostly about Brooke Lopez and Boyan Bogdanovich. Obviously, one of those two players got traded and Brooke remains in Brooklyn for yet another season. So... I guess my thoughts on it were that Brooke Lopez, just as someone who can play decent basketball and not make the Nets unwatchable, was worth keeping around if they didn't really get a good enough offer. But I wanted to sort of delve more into your thoughts on this. What did you think about Sean Marks standing pat on Brooke Lopez at the trade deadline? Again, it shows Sean Marks' patience. I believe there were offers from a New Orleans trade, and there were probably other trades on the table, like from Indiana. But Sean Marks set his price for Brooke Lopez that's two first-round picks. Uh, Zach Lowe even said that it would be crazy if the Nets got second-round picks for Brooke Lopez. So Sean Marks believes that Lopez is worth more than second-round picks and worth more than picks in the 20s. So I'm kind of pleased to see that Marks didn't take the best offer on the table for Lopez, who's been the best Nets player all season. And seeing him for his 10th season, which is crazy, next season be pretty exciting if he doesn't get traded at the NBA draft. So you brought this up, and I thought it was absolutely the right point. The DeMarcus Cousins trade really did recalibrate the market for centers in general, but particularly someone like Brooke Lopez, who, as you discussed, might have been a target for the Pelicans, but obviously that trade wasn't going to happen after they managed to secure DeMarcus Cousins. So talking about Boyan Bogdanovich, I guess I sort of made my somewhat biased point in favor of the trade earlier, but what are your thoughts on the return they got from the Wizards? I think it was a pretty solid trade for Sean Marks and the Nets again. They waited out to see their offers, and that was probably the best offer they got on the table. They acquired Andrew Nicholson, who's at $6.8 million a year, and I was really afraid seeing the rumors for the trade that they were going to take Ian Mahimi. So the Nets got a much less albatrossy contract with Nicholson, or even with Charlotte, they had Miles Plumley, who was on another big number. So the Nets didn't take on too much cap in, the, in trading Bogdanovich, and they got their first-round pick, which was what the goal was in trading him, especially going into restricted free agency. The only thing that I didn't particularly like about the trade was just that the Nets basically gave up on Chris McCullough. And granted, McCullough hadn't been able to get above Anthony Bennett in the rotation, which I think says a lot, but he did play decently well down the stretch of last season, and he was a first-round pick just a couple of years ago. So throwing him into that trade, I think, was a little more value than the Nets really needed to give up. But overall, I'm definitely a fan of the trade. 
Now, the last thing that you discussed in the article was absorbing contracts from other teams, and that wasn't something that the Nets did at the trade deadline, but I think is something that could be in play come draft day. And I think that's, as you discussed, one of the biggest assets the Nets have is just their ability to decide to take on big veteran contracts because they're not really going to be contending until they start getting their first round picks back. So what are your thoughts on the Nets not sort of going that route and getting assets in return for absorbing bigger contracts? I think going forward, we'll see more of the Nets absorbing contracts, probably. Especially if Brooke Lopez is on the table, he might take back a, a big contract, something like the Mahimi contract, like I mentioned. But they will probably be able to get assets back, especially in the form of first round picks, which are still really cheap, probably the best value in the NBA money-wise. And one thing that I might have to think about is the Nets' cap space going to restricted free agency. It's obvious that the Nets will probably go after someone like Contavious Caldwell-Pope, Tim Hardaway Jr., and Otto Porter. So they might want to reserve some cap space just to take a shot at those guys, however unlikely it is for them to not get matched by their teams. I think Contavious Caldwell-Pope and Otto Porter, after the seasons they've had, are almost guaranteed to be matched, even if the Nets put a max offer on the table. But Tim Hardaway Jr. is a really interesting potential choice for Brooklyn to chase in restricted free agency. Yep. Kenny Atkinson also coached him in Atlanta as well, so there's that connection too. All right, let's move on to my most recent article for Hashtag Basketball about how the Nets might be looking for another D-League success story. And we talked a little bit earlier about Spencer Dinwiddie and Quincy AC, both of whom earned their way into long-term contracts from the Nets after being signed out of the D-League. And after the Luis Scola buyout, the Nets have one more roster spot available, and I think it would be a really worthwhile move for them to at least look at D-League players to get on 10-day contracts for the rest of the season. Maybe they'll flame out, maybe they won't be that helpful, but taking a chance on the next Spencer Dinwiddie, the next Quincy AC, or if we're talking about Nets D-League stars, obviously Jeremy Lin came out of the D-League a long time ago, but still, I think given that the Nets have a free roster spot and really nothing to do with it for the rest of this season, it would be worth looking at some of those D-League players. Yeah, for sure. And one thing that we haven't mentioned so far is KJ McDaniels. KJ McDaniels might not have been a D-League player, but he was a player that was really underutilized in Houston. I thought that trading Chris McCullough was the thing that facilitated that McDaniels acquisition at the trade deadline. But as for the D-League, I completely agree with you. Uh, With that 15th roster spot, even though they might not have the minutes for the player, it would just be nice to look at someone like Cliff Alexander or even Tristan Burrell up close and in practice against NBA competition. Absolutely. And I wrote a little bit about McDaniels as well, you know, just throwing a little more self-promotion in there. But I was a really big fan of that move just because the Rockets got what they wanted. They got an extra roster spot to chase people on the buyout market, which hasn't really worked out for them so far. But in return, the Nets got someone who was really, really effective last time he got major minutes, which was his rookie year in Philadelphia. But in terms of looking at D-League choices for the Nets, You brought up Cliff Alexander, who I think would also be a great ad for them. 
I haven't really seen as much of Trasan Burrell as I would have liked, just given how he's been a key player for the Long Island Nets this year. But do you have any thoughts on him you want to talk about quickly? Yeah, I think Burrell probably has the most potential out of all the Long Island Nets players. I think Alexander kind of overlaps a bit with Quincy AC and Trevor Booker as undersized power forwards. But Burrell, he's super long, even though he's super skinny. He rebounds well on both ends of the court. He isn't that great of a shooter, but he can score in the mid-range, and he's pretty athletic too. And I think defensively, he would be great switching from one to four, because I believe that he can play all four positions, a la Ron Hollis Jefferson. The other Long Island net that I thought might be worth a look is Bo Beach. He can shoot. And I guess the other minor motive for him is that he's 6'9", but a wing player. And even though he's not the quickest defensively, that size alone is really helpful. And his combination of ability to shoot and that size, I think, would make him a great add for the Nets. And if you played him and Rondé Hollis-Jefferson together, you could try out some interesting sort of lineups where Hollis Jefferson plays the four on defense, but the three on offense, and see if you can convince opposing teams to send out a four onto Bo Beach to try and mess up the defensive systems that way. Yeah, but I think Beach has kind of lost his way in the rotation for the Long Island Nets as of late. He's, he hasn't been starting recently, but I still believe in the skill set. He actually played shooting guard in college, so seeing a 6'9 guy that's able to put the ball on the floor and shoot it, he's, he would be a really interesting piece down the line if he just figures out how to understand defense and overcome his athletic deficiencies. All right, let's move on to talking about some of the best and worst games for the Nets this season. And I wanted to start with their win against the Clippers on November 29th. And the main reason I wanted to start with that is because the Nets managed to play a really solid game against a top-tier Western Conference playoff contender, and they managed to stick around with an incredible fourth-quarter run that sent the game into overtime. They managed to keep it together to send it into double overtime, where they more than doubled the Clippers' scoring output. So... Did you have any sort of major takeaways from that game other than just being pleased that the Nets managed to really take it to such a high caliber team? I think along with being one of the best games of the Nets season, it was also one of the most dramatic games. In the fourth quarter, we saw Sean Kilpatrick like go completely off. He finished the game with 39 points. And at the end of that first overtime, Doc Rivers got ejected and the Nets had technical fouls to shoot because Rivers got ejected and they chose Isaiah Whitehead and they missed both free throws, which sent the game into double overtime. If they lost, it would have probably been the most Nets loss ever, but I'm really glad they won. And it was a really good showing to show the league that the Nets really play hard, even though they aren't the most talented team. Kilpatrick actually ended up with 38 points, not 39 points, but he also did have 14 rebounds, which was incredible. And the Isaiah Whitehead thing could have been a real downer for him, especially since he had played a pretty poor game overall up until that point. He played 46 minutes, but was two for eight from the field, missed both of those big free throws, almost fouled out of the game. And I think this game could have really been an anchor that sort of sank his season if they hadn't managed to pull it out in double overtime. But I think one interesting thing that stood out to me from this game is 
Brooke Lopez got eight rebounds and DeAndre Jordan had 23 rebounds, but Brooke was a plus 24 in this game. And I think that also sort of speaks to how much of a difference he makes for this team in that even though DeAndre Jordan had a really, really great game shooting almost 70% from the floor, those 23 rebounds, 21 points, Brooke was still just such a massive positive for this Nets team. Yeah, and again, that shows his value to the team. He might not be valued as highly by other teams as the Nets do, but he's been their best player, and I can't say that enough, especially with him scoring his 10,000 points as a Net recently, too. So let's talk about a more recent game from the Nets, and that was their surprisingly dominant victory over the Memphis Grizzlies in Memphis on March 6th. And I think the biggest positive from this game, in my opinion, was that Brooke Lopez was, again, a massive positive. He was plus 15 on the game, but he only scored eight points and only got four rebounds. And the Nets still managed to win because Jeremy Lin went off in the fourth quarter. Full insanity. The rest of the team played well around them. So I think that game was a real positive for Brooklyn just because they showed that they could win without Brooke Lopez doing most of the scoring for them. Yeah. Uh, in that game, six players scored double digits. Levert, Lynn, Hall Jefferson, Foy, and Kilpatrick. And then that was the game Kilpatrick had 16 out of 17 free throws and not the Atlanta game. And that really showed that the team can put it together defensively as well, too. Like, like you were saying, Lopez only scored eight points, but he played really good defense against Marcus Ole down the stretch, too. Isaiah Whitehead also scored in double digits with 15, and right. he shot 62.5% from the field, and Lavert shot 83% from the field. And granted, you're talking small sample sizes when you're talking one game. And Lavert surprisingly, went two for five from the line in this game. But having the young guys score effectively, and especially Hollis Jefferson, since he has not really been as much of a offensive player as a defensive player throughout his career. Seeing him, you know, fight his way to the line and fight his way through traffic to score at the rim has been a real positive down the stretch of this season. And something that he's doing less with Jeremy Lindback, but something that I think he was really effective at at times with Lynn out this season. Hollis Jefferson has had the ball in his hands a lot more often. And for a wing player that can't really spot up and shoot threes, I think that's an effective way to utilize them is to have them have the ball in their hands and try and create plays rather than spot up and space the floor. Yeah, I think going forward, Rondé Hollis Jefferson would have more of a, more utility just driving, using his speed and length. I think back in summer league, Kenny Atkinson even started him as point guard. So they're really trying everything with him just to see what sticks with him. It's obvious that they like his attitude and they like what he brings to the team athletically. He just needs to find something that he can excel at. All right, so let's move from talking about some of the more encouraging games to talk about some of the less encouraging games. And I wanted to start with their loss to the Bulls on Halloween. That was in Barclays Center, and it was only the Nets' fourth game of the season, so at this point they weren't that far underwater, and the Bulls just destroyed them in their own building in a really, really discouraging way. Yeah, that was like the peak of the Bulls season. They started off 3-0, and then it just really tailed off from there. But for the Nets, it really showed that effort is really important for the team. If they don't play hard, they 
have games like that where they lose by 30. Uh, in that game, all of their starters were negatives. Ronnie Hollis Jefferson was in minus 23 and he shot one for seven. Trevor Booker shot two for seven from the field as well. And there was nobody off the bench that really contributed uh, in a positive way. So it was really discouraging. And you could see it during that game in the second half. You heard Jeremy Lin drop an F-bomb uh, at the refs because he was frustrated that he wasn't getting fouled. So it was a really frustrating game for the Nets early in the season. And Jeremy Lin in particular had a right to be frustrated because other than Joe Harris going four for eight off the bench, he was the only Nets player who shot above 50%. He also had four steals and four assists in a little under 24 minutes. So that was a really solid game for Jeremy Lin and the rest of the team let him down in a major way. You were talking about plus minus. The two best plus minuses on the team were Sean Kilpatrick at minus three, despite the fact that he shot three of 13 from the field and 0 of six from deep. And the other minus three belongs to Anthony Bennett, who in 12 minutes went two of seven overall, one of five from deep, and got one rebound and one steal. And anytime Anthony Bennett is one of the better players on the team and he puts up a shooting line like that, you know the team as a whole just had an awful game. Yeah, I, that whole Anthony Bennett experiment was kind of a disaster, but it was nice to see the Nets kind of take a chance on him. Yeah, I totally agree. I thought it was a good flyer. I thought it was a smart flyer. And sometimes those work out great and sometimes they don't. But it was definitely, I think, worth it for them to give a chance to a guy who had been the number one overall pick. You know, he had lived up to that, clearly, but I thought it was worth a flyer anyway. All right, moving on to the last game I want to discuss in this section. The Nets lost to the Minnesota Timberwolves 129-109 to on January 28th. And the real reason I wanted to bring up this game is this was a prime example of what happens to this Nets team when it's basically just Brooke Lopez out there because Brooke had a really solid game, 25 points, seven rebounds, two blocks, 10 of 15 shooting, three of six from deep, and the rest of the team really just didn't show up. Trevor Booker actually did show up, but Trevor Booker always shows up. Karis LeVert had a decent game. Sean Kilpatrick shot well, but was not a positive on defense to say the least. And Carl Anthony Towns destroyed every Nets big man that he had to face. And yeah, it was just, it was an unfortunate performance to, for the Nets to allow 129 points to a team that had struggled on offense throughout the year. Yeah, definitely. Even Zach Levine and Andrew Wiggins scored 23 and 20 respectively. So it was a poor defensive performance overall by the Nets. Even Shabazz Muhammad scored 18 points off the bench as well for the Timberwolves. So again, it's the effort. Nobody, like you said, nobody really showed up other than Berg Lopez and Trevor Booker. And that can be seen defensively. So that's a big reason for that loss. Even though they were only down eight by halftime, they, that lead extended to 20 by the end of the game. Yeah. And that I think was the troubling part. The Nets have really struggled in the third quarter throughout this season. And I think this game was really indicative of that in that the Timberwolves might be the only team in the NBA that struggled in the third quarter more than the Nets have, and yet Brooklyn still got outscored by them in that third period. Right. All right, anything else you want to discuss before we wrap up here? I think just looking to the, to the draft, it's pretty interesting to, to scout who Sean Marks will draft. We know he'll like take flyers on people, and we know that he'll throw out restricted free agency offers. So it'll be interesting to see going forward, especially with the season basically over with. The good news for Brooklyn is that at least this year, it's a pick swap with the Celtics rather than just 
next year, which is just unprotected pick right to Boston. So that means that the Nets will at least get to take a flyer on someone towards the back half of the first round. And given what we've seen from Rondé Hollis-Jefferson and Karis LeVert, both guys in the back of the first round, and also Isaiah Whitehead, who was a guy relatively early in the second round, I think the Nets have shown that they can find gems sort of in that range of picks that might not be the superstar potential players that you get in the top three, but guys that can be effective. And especially with Levert sort of taking a chance on someone that fell not due to caliber of play, but due to injury in a way that was assuaged by their own doctor, I think the Nets can find someone in that 20 to 25 range that the Boston pick is probably going to end up as that could be an effective contributor for them. Yeah, and I'm surprised that this was the first time we actually mentioned the Celtic swap, considering that's how everyone else used Nets. But I think with both the Washington and the Celtics picks, and even the Celtics swap picks in the second round, the Nets can really take some interesting choices going forward, especially with a draft that's been as highly touted as this one. All right, well, that about wraps things up for us. You can follow Charles on Twitter at Ignition. Did I do that even close correctly? Yeah, Ignition. It's spelled I-G-N-I-S-Y-O-N. So it's pretty easy if you just spell it out. There you go, Ignition. You can find him on Twitter there. You can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson. I got rid of the underscore for the people who've been listening to this podcast dutifully throughout the season, for which I thank you immensely. You can follow both of our work on hashtag basketball, hashtag basketball.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. Also, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter with any feedback, any suggestions positive or negative. I'd love to hear from all of you and thanks so much for listening.